0: You wake up in the world of broken hope. Are you there already begging for the rope? Are you trying to sit back and the line?
1: Or do you think that you can barely find the time? Some of us Welcome to Bold Conversations About Race, a podcast brought to you by Surge National in collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and produced by White People for Black Lives. I'm one of your hosts, Dahlia Forlito. I use they them pronouns. And I'm Yvette All-A.
0: I use they, them pronouns as well.
1: For today's episode, we have Erin Heaney. She is the National Director of Showing Up for Racial Justice, also known as SURGE, a national organization that organizes in majority white communities to undermine the power of the right and bring more white people into multiracial anti-racist movements for justice. She brings over a decade of experience running grassroots campaigns for economic, racial, and environmental justice and building organizations to enable transformative organizing. In her time at Surge, Erin has shepherded significant growth and strategic shifts, including the growth of the Surge chapter network to over 175 local groups working on issues of policing, mass incarceration, and immigration, and the launch of Surge's electoral organizing programs and the robust centering of and expansion of Surge's organizing in poor and working-class rural and southern communities. And I will say, as a member of the Showing Up for Racial Justice National Leadership Team, Erin is a friend, a homie, a comrade, and I'm so thrilled that we're going to be interviewing her today and talking about Surge's work and the history of white people organizing in racial justice movements.
0: So Aaron, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from and how did you arrive to organizing white people?
2: Well, um, I am from Buffalo, New York, which is where I still live. And that's where most of my people still are. Um, I grew up here in a big Irish-Italian family. Um, and I, you know, there was, there was definitely some movement lineage in my family. My dad was a um, union negotiator. Um, and he was also an investigative reporter, which means that I grew up in a house with a pretty he- healthy uh, dose of skepticism of like anybody in power, didn't matter what political party you were or if you're an elected official or didn't matter who you were. My dad was suspicious of you. Question um, everything. <laughs> and he got it from his dad, who was an attorney and deeply connected to the struggles in Northern Ireland. He um, he represented a lot of the... Um, Hunger strikers who were incarcerated by the British Empire um, in Northern Ireland, and he sued that he sued the British Empire like under, under the special for the Special Powers Act, which was like this bill that was incarcerating all kinds of Catholics in Northern Ireland. So um, they say I never met my grandpa, but they say I'm a lot like him. I'm the the carry through, I suppose. Um, and, you know, in my family growing up, you know, we had all kinds of people in my family, people of all political stripes. We had Democrats, Republicans, and, you know, we were definitely a cross-class crew. Um, we didn't talk about race a whole lot when I, you know, growing up at all, even though there was a lot of politics in my family. Um, and I think one of the really important threads that led me, you know, kind of started me on the journey to organizing white folks was I organized in Buffalo and the surrounding towns um, when I came home from college Um, I worked with um, an environmental justice organization that was organizing in communities that were really, really um, polluted um, because of racism and classism. And we um, just saw in the work over and over and over again that, you know, we weren't going to be able to build um, enough power or build a multiracial coalition without doing the work with white folks. I remember a time, (laughs) there's lots of stories to tell about this, but I remember a time You know, we had been kind of winning neighborhood by neighborhood. Some neighborhoods were mostly white. Some neighborhoods were mostly black. And we brought folks together. We were like, we're going to have this amazing training. We're going to take on the governor. And like within the first 20 minutes, like a bunch of white people said a lot of racist stuff and the the whole thing completely blew up, rightfully so. Um, And it just that's just one example of, you know, without addressing racism, we can't actually get to the work of organizing and building solidarity um, if we don't address, you know, if we don't address racism. Um, so I think I just became convinced that actually on a really pragmatic level, we weren't going to be able to build enough power and have enough strength, um, to really change systems without, without addressing racism, especially with the white folks, you know, the people that I came from. And, and I remember also just getting a lot of feedback. I was lucky that I got a lot of feedback from, you know, movement elders, but also from folks of color in my life who are invested in my leadership and who were, you know, would call me out, you know, when I was <laughs> when I needed to be checked or when I needed feedback about how I was showing up in space. And, you know, I remember uh one of the most vivid memories I have as a dear a dear comrade, you know, once it, really at the beginning of my journey around white supremacy and racism was just sat me down and was like, you know what, Aaron, your way is not the only way of doing things. Um and you know, it felt like shit in the moment. I was like mortified and embarrassed. And it was like a really important and gift in retrospect. Um, And it sent me down a path of doing a lot more study, you know, a lot more learning, a lot more being in relationship with people who were doing the deep kind of learning and unlearning um, around white supremacy and racism that I really needed to do if I was going to be able to show up in movement and contribute in a powerful way. So Um, I got to do lots of learning about like how my family became white, you know, like what we had to give up, um, because of that. I did a lot of learning on like the history of white supremacy and just more the history of this country that I was never taught as a white person. So it was really those two threads, um, that I was like really lucky to dig in like really, really deeply. And I think, um. I have deep respect for both traditions. And I think that either one alone really is insufficient, right? Like I think at Surge, one of the things we're trying to do is blend the best of like analysis and deep political education with actually organizing out in the world to change systems and structures. So I think deep respect for both, both lineages there that we're trying to blend, I think. Um, Yeah, those are some of the threads. And then when we, you know, I was really, really deeply moved by the uprisings in Ferguson like young, mostly black folks taken to the streets and, um, wanted to show up in that moment, you know, alongside them. And so I started like a bail fund in Buffalo and we were sending money to keep people in the streets every night. And, um, we founded our search chapter here in Buffalo. It was part of getting that, that crew off, um, off the ground. Um, yeah, so I think those are some of the threads that led me to this work around organizing white folks.
1: We have, we have, of course, a few other questions that we wanted to get to, but um, you know, you were sharing several things that, for myself, I obviously deeply resonate with because I think we had similar paths in terms of receiving the gift of feedback that led us to building an anti-racist analysis and then a desire to take anti-racist action. And so I wanted to like pause for one moment on like viewing feedback as a gift, right? Like Because I think that sometimes or oftentimes for white folks when we get feedback that like we might be behaving in ways that are causing pain or harm or just, you know, being received poorly by people that we are in relationship to that our an instinct becomes defense. We want to explain, we want to try to justify or rationalize. And we see this as like something that we need to almost repel in many ways, like, oh, what are you trying to say? I'm not a good person, like all of these other, these, these rationales, why we push against receiving feedback. And then, you know, to just like reframe to say, like, actually, somebody is like, Going out of their way and and causing themselves great discomfort in many levels by giving us feedback about how we are behaving in ways that are not congruent with how we see ourselves or think of ourselves. And so, therefore, it's giving us the opportunity to course correct. And so, for white folks who might be listening, like, you know, I I just want to stress the importance of like thinking about feedback as a gift and it gives us an opportunity to do something different, to be something different and to show up in different ways. And um, the other piece that uh, wanted to talk a little bit more about is if you can kind of elaborate on what your family had to give up to be white, like, what does that mean? Like, I know that, you know, we, we, in, in some spaces, so in like for us in the Unmasking Whiteness Institute that we have here, Um, In Los Angeles, we have um, a series of ways in which we try to allow folks to understand the process of assimilation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when European immigrants come to this country um, as very specific ethnicities and whether it's, you know, Italian, Polish, Irish, what have you, and what that process was like to then become white, right? Like, so do you have anything you wanted to share with our audience
2: around that? For sure. I mean, I I think... I mean, just on a very practical level, like, we had to give up our name. We gave up our names. Like, my 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 Italian family, there was a story that my grandpa assimilated, and he gave up the name. Uh, so he he changed his name to Mardino. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. So the Italian side of my family very intentionally assimilated. And then the Irish side of my family, like, in my parents' home, there is a – there's like a framed thing that says your name is Irish, your name is Heaney, your name is Irish. Don't you ever forget it basically? So it's, it's much more eloquent than that. But um, so we had to give up our name. We gave up all kinds of culture. There's all kinds of things that I never learned. <laughs> um, that I've been trying to rediscover, but all kinds of, and I think the, the one that feels really you know, among those, I think, are resiliency practices <laughs> that kept people alive for generations and kept people much more deeply connected to the earth that I never had access to. And I, you know, I know that, you know, my own quality of life is not, not what it could have been, you know, because we had to give that up in order to, to assimilate. So I've been thinking a lot lately about, yeah, culture and resiliency practices. So there's a lot of other things too. The element sure. of cultural
1: loss and then what we need to do to try to fill that cup once it's not there anymore. Um, yeah. um, so we're going to pivot a little bit um, to talking more about, history and you know we, we we know you're not like a historian right but like as as people who organize white people um you know we think it's important to know who our ancestors were who our elders were like who are the people that have been thrown down far beyond the you know our time because i think that like a lot of of our history is completely erases the fact that there has ever been a resistance, like that there was ever white people resisting a white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal, you know, heterosexist, you know, the, all, the the, the, all the things <laughs> that like we were just like never there and, you know, that we don't have a legacy for our, us to build on. And then and then within that story, we know that, you know, showing up for racial justice is part of that legacy, is that story, too. So if you'd like to sort of fold in a little bit about that history,
2: too. Yeah, yeah. This is intimidating because Dali and I have many historian friends, and I'm not <laughs> one of them. <laughs> but I'm gonna do my part to tell our history. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Dali, like there have always been. And Carla Wallace, who's one of the founders of Surge, always says we have always, you know, we've always been there, always imperfectly, and always too few of us. Um, but but <laughs> You're <probably> saying that. <laughs> but uh, we'll have her But the there is a them. long lineage that we come from for those of us who are white and ha- who have who are doing this work. Um. You know, I think, I think about, you know, all the way back to like reconstruction, right? There were poor white folks that were, you know, lining up and fighting back against plantation owners, um, who were, um, yeah, like that, you know, goes back that far. The, the I think about the, uh, the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921, right? Which was a pretty epic battle between coal miners who were up against the coal company and deputized, deputized. Did I say that right? Deputized, <laughs> um, coal company mining forces who like mowed them down and the white workers you know wore this is actually where the um, red bandana this is where the term redneck comes from because the white workers wore bandanas red bandanas to sign to signify that they were in solidarity with the other black workers and not the white mine owners or the deputies who were you know authorized to mow people down So that's pretty powerful. It's like pretty, pretty epic battle, labor history battle. Um, You know, there were there were lots of white folks who participated in the white Southern Freedom Movement, right, the Civil Rights Movement. There were people like Ann and Carl Braden, um, who were uh, a couple in Louisville, Kentucky, and who organized throughout the South, um, you know, alongside people like Ella Baker. And they knew Dr. King and so many other people who made the Southern Movement Freedom come to life and, and be animated, And, you know, Anne was very, very clear about the need to organize white people. <laughs> um, you know, she did she did a lot of work, you know, agitating and organizing white women about the particular ways that white women were being used to prop up, you know, the, the status quo. Um, their family bought a, a house for a black family uh, before integration integrated neighborhoods were, were legal. And Carl went to, br- to prison because of that. Um, their house was bombed. Um, So they were pretty, pretty powerful ancestors that we have to look back on, I I think. Um, And we have some direct lineages that surge to Anne. Um, I think about people like Mickey Schwerner, um, who was murdered by the Klan, who was a Southern freedom rider, um, who came down to register voters in the Deep South um, and was murdered alongside other comrades. These are people, these are white folks who took real risk, right? <laughs> At Surge, we talk a lot about, like, being accountable through action. And these are people who really put their bodies on the lines, like, over and over and over again. Um, you know, and then I think, you know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, which which had been had doing a lot of organizing across the South in you know, as the Black Power Movement was growing alongside the Southern Freedom Movement and the Civil Rights Movement, um, there was a call from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was multiracial, um, but from Black leadership within SNCC, which is the shorthand for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, for white folks um, who had been involved in that struggle to go home, essentially, and to organize their own. You know, there was like, you know, pretty deep respect for the risks that people had taken. But there was also an acknowledgement that the biggest barriers to winning the things that people were struggling for were white communities. <laughs> and so white folks were asked to go home and organize their own people in the places they're from to get more folks to line up alongside the Southern Freedom Movement. And, you know, that happened in pockets for sure. Um the Poor People's Campaign did a lot of this work out of the Highlander Center, organizing in much more conservative um, white communities where people were really, really struggling organizing people into a poor people's movement and helping people understand that their fates were really tied to other, you know, poor and working class communities of color. So that happened in the Highlander Center, um, which is a training center in Tennessee, really helped facilitate a lot of that work, which was a, a place where a lot of multiracial organizing was happening. Um, and then there was the another formation that came, is this too much information? Is this okay? I feel like I'm going down memory. Oh no, keep going. keep going. Okay, 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 so then there was like another formation that also grew out of some of these other characters that we've named was um the Southern Student organizing Committee, SOC, SSOC, which was founded by a couple of the white folks who were part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee very intentionally to organize white students, you know, into this movement. They were going to mostly white college campuses. And, um, and it was Soakley Carmichael was very into this idea and actually SNCC gave these white students their first $300 to start the organizing effort. That's something that Pam McMichael, who is a former director at the Highlander Center, has told, has kind of carried that history forward. So they tried it. It wasn't super successful, but they learned a lot. You know, there's a lot there. Um, And then I think the only other like, um, historical example I'd want to lift up is like the, um, the rainbow coalition in Chicago that Fred Hampton, um, grounded, and it was a multiracial working class coalition. And the young patriots were the kind of like white crew of people that were organizing poor white folks, um, against police brutality for, you know, housing and a whole range of other kind of around a people's platform. Um, but but people were doing it very intentionally kind of around their identities as well. So, yeah. So we come from like, those are just some examples. Our history friends, Dahlia, can come back and give more examples. But, but just to say, like, um, I didn't know all this history before I found search. to be honest. I knew some of it, but really not most of it. And it's been a really powerful piece to know, like, wow, we actually do have all this lineage at our back. Um, and and some folks we can be proud of. You know, there's a lot to not be proud of and um, when just a white person looking back in history.
1: <laughs> but I think the the important thing for, well, there's a couple things that I think about that I think one thing was Ibram X. Kendi mentioned was just like this notion that like, you know, a lot of people talk about racism, like, You know, the historical racism that we think about like, oh, those were just the signs of the times. Those were the times everybody was racist. Everybody, you know, and it's like, no, that actually was not ever the case. Like there was never a time in which everybody just went along with it. There was always a resistance and that resistance came from so many places, including white folks. Yeah, I mean, hearing the history is
0: super powerful, especially to our white listeners that are engaging in anti-racist work for the first time, you know, coming out of the uprisings. There was a lot of folks that were being exposed to anti-racist work for the first time with the uprisings and so you know note to white folks like you're not the first and you're not alone right Mm -hmm. um there there is deep legacy of resistance that um you can be proud of and and that's not something that most folks hear in engaging with anti-racist work right so i think that piece is, is particularly powerful
2: should I speak a little bit about Surge? Yeah. Yeah. So then Surge came along, not out of nowhere, in fact, <laughs> deeply connected to this lineage. Um, we were founded as an organization by folks who were already really deep in movement and doing anti-racist work in other ways. Um, and there was um, really intense backlash, as, as I hope most folks know, to the um, election of the first black president, Barack Obama. And so we were founded in a moment where we were seeing escalations in hate crimes. And we were also seeing the really not new, but escalated and intentional ways in which the right was using race um, to peel white people off and, you know, poor working class white folks in particular from joining the struggle for um, winning healthcare reform in this country. So I, I don't know, folks may remember like the really heated, you know, After the last, you know, I don't know, seven eight years, this may feel quite faint. Death panels? Are we going to talk about the death panels? Death panels. panels. You remember the death panels and the very intense ways where white, largely white folks, were being mobilized to show up at these town halls. You know, there and there were really racialized attacks against uh, against the president and these really intense narratives like who was deserving of health care, right? That were very very racialized. And it was being used by then, you know, at the time, the Tea Party to make sure that, you know, um, that the the movement, the growing movement was weakened. Um, And there were a lot of movement leaders of color in that moment that were saying, like, white folks, what are you doing? Like, the right is coming for your people. And they're being quite successful. And so what are y'all going to do in response? And so it was really in response to, you know, informal conversations people were having. And also, you know, a call that, surge was formed and white folks began to come together to talk about what we were going to do as white people um in this moment. And we were convened by Pam McMichael, who was at the time the director at the Highlander Center and very clearly carried this, you know, deep lineage um, with her. Um, and was, you know, kind of falling on, on back on that as well. So um yeah, so so that's how we were founded. And, and for a really long time we were we were pretty low to the ground. Um, But we've grown really substantially, I think, in response to the really deep and strategic organizing of the Movement for Black Lives and so many other frontline organizations that have really agitated more white people to um, get off the sidelines, pick a side and get into action. So, So
0: thank you for giving us that background on Surge. I'm curious to hear more about Surge's values. Like you all show up so well. Um, we've had the pleasure of organizing with White People for Black Lives, which is a surge chapter here in L.A., um, and by we, I mean Justice L.A. and so many uh, different organizations that are led by directly impacted folks, uh, black, brown, indigenous, queer, trans folks, Um and so I'm, I'm curious, what are the values that that drive the way that you all show up?
2: Yeah. So we've got a bunch of values at Surge. Someone made a song about them once. Oh, maybe we can get it. Oh, Dolly, right. you don't know that? I was going to make you try to sing with me, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I think we've tried, over the years articulated a handful of values that really ground our work and um it feels important to say that like comes out of the work. It's not like some abstract conversation we had. It's really been from like a process of, a, a, like a practice of being in the work, reflecting and then trying to articulate like what we were learning. Um, there's so many of them. So let me see if I can remember all of them. Dolly might have to have you in. I mean, I think the first I already mentioned, I think earlier in our conversation, which is accountability through action. Um, And, you know, we know that racism and white supremacy express at all kinds of levels, right? It expresses at the individual level, at the cultural level, at the systemic level. And a lot of um, a lot of anti-racist efforts um, stay really, really focused at just the individual level and just behavior change level. Right. And we can get really stuck in the like wanting to know everything before we move into action and I want to be really clear. This doesn't mean we're like off by ourselves or like if we by ourselves think we have a great idea, we like spring into action, right? We want to be in relationship with folks on the front lines, right? And we want to be in relationship with other white people, right? That have been doing this work for a long time. But we can't wait until we know everything before we move into action. And we actually think we're accountable, you know, by being in action. And Dolly, you should jump in whenever too, because you are deep in this too <laughs> about great Um Yeah. So then there's two values that feel connected to me. So one is like growing is good and calling people in, which feel very, very connected to me. Um and I think this is this is about a couple of things, but it's about acknowledging that like we are all conditioned by white supremacy, right? And so a really intense thing can happen. Like when we make, when we see other white people make mistakes, for those of us who are white, we can get really um Oftentimes, especially when we're newly politicized, we can just want to, like, point the finger and, like, call people out and point out how unlike them we are, right? And distance ourselves, which is really about our own discomfort with our whiteness, probably, if we really sit with it, then it is about, um, yeah, than it is about the other person. Um, and so for us at Surge, it means really actually moving towards people, right, who may not get it yet and inviting them into our movement. Um, And doing the work that it takes to move people from where they're at into where we know where we know that we need them to be. And this piece about growing is good is that, you know, we talked about this earlier, but like if we're going to fundamentally if we're going to like end white supremacy and we're going to fundamentally transform this economic system that we live under that's so unjust, we're going to need a lot more people with us than we've got now. Right. And we can't just have a tiny group of perfect white people. I'm saying that facetiously. (laughs) We actually need power. And it surge and many of our movement partners believe like power comes. We don't have a lot of money, right? But power can come from organized groups of people. And so we're trying to grow a base of people that can be in action, anti-racist action. Um, And so we can't just be a tiny group of people, right? We're trying to grow intentionally over time to welcome more people in. So our movement has enough power to win things because it's going to take a lot of power up against really, really powerful forces. Okay, those are three of them. Um, I so then there's two, um, two also that feel very connected, which is center class, and that there is enough for all. She'll so deeply, um, deeply connected. Like at Surge, we um, we think it's really important that we that we understand that race was created in order to maintain an economic system that keeps a very, very small number of people wealthy at the expense of the many. And that racism is an incredibly powerful tool that they have to maintain that system. Um, so we just, we can't separate a conversation about white supremacy from capitalism, right? From the economic system that we're living under. And so that's really important in all of our political education work. Um, you know, there's a, um, a movement elder I lean on a lot named Jerome Scott, and he constantly reminds us that white supremacy and racism was created to break our natural tendencies to unite. Mm. And um, I just think it's so powerful. It's just such a, um, it's just really, really powerful. And so I think when we, when we, when we talk about this, like, um, value of there being enough for all there really is enough for all right there's people at the top that are trying to convince us that that is not true and racism is their most powerful tool to to do that um i think for us there's also a strategic question which maybe we can get into a little later (laughs) which is about like there's also a lot of poor white people in this country right who are also not doing great under their current system like before COVID hit there were 65 million poor white people in this country Right, and um, mostly it's the right, it's the right and the far right that are going after those folks and organizing white, you know, poor working class white folks. And so we think it's surge, it's our and they're doing it very well. And they're doing it very well. I mean, they're unabashed about it. They're like really going for it, um, which is another historical piece. I mean, not to get too tangential, but I'm like we 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 want to learn the history of you know our folks that that chose the other America, chose the right side, but. There's also a deep and long history of the right very intentionally organizing people to make sure that they don't unite, right, across lines of difference. That could be a whole other podcast. Um, So, yeah. So then um, the other – two other values. One is take risk, make mistakes. We added make amends and keep going. (laughs) Just that, like, it's inevitable for those of us, like, we're all humans, and especially as white people doing racial justice work, we know that we're going to make mistakes, right? Right. And so when that happens, it's really important that despite what's coming up for us as, you know, our our feelings that we actually, you know, engage in receiving the feedback as a gift. Right. And um, make amends with the person that we caused harm to, but that we stay in the work. Right. There's just way too much at stake in this moment. And there's always been for us to sit on the sidelines. And so we're not trying to be perfect. We're trying to be in the work in a process of constant like self-reflection and improvement. And then. My favorite surge value is mutual interest, which is, um, which is that we're not doing this as white people to help other people, right? That actually we have, um, we have a stake in this fight and that we want to really avoid coming in as white saviors or thinking that we know better, right? We can fall into that really, really easily, but we think it's critically important that we figure out what is our stake in this fight and that we move from a place of, of shared interest, um, not from a place of trying to save anybody, um. I love that. I hit them
1: all I, I I think you did. I think you did. And, you know, and I just want to underscore like the, this came out of the work. This came out of learning. This came out of doing, learning, making those mistakes, coming back to the table, getting feedback and all of that to, to finally, you know, come to this place of understanding our values, understanding what the value is of organizing white people and all of that. And so, um, I'm glad that you ended your your piece with with mutual interests because now I want to actually dig into that. More so, you know, there's there's this white savior thing that you talked about, like you know, which is um like this sort of um this charity mentality, like you know, as white people, we know what's better for all of these you know uh, th- these types of people who are suffering, and that like we're gonna just come in and we're gonna fix it, right? And we have there's like a lot of a uh, media around that there's there's a lot of movies that center you know the teacher that goes into this underfunded school and da 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 and like all of those kinds of things that constantly like um get pushed into our faces of like this is what you do to help people and there's certainly lots of government programs that you know that cater to that like the AmeriCorps and like all of those kinds of things and and so but when we talk about mutual interests, we're talking about the fact that like white folks actually have something to gain by working in multiracial coalition for collective liberation. And so can you break down a little bit like what are what's the material gains? Like, how can we feel the types of ways that we would actually benefit from uh, from engaging in racial justice work?
2: Well, I think that white people have just about everything to gain from joining multiracial movements for justice is a mouthful. Um, but I, there's also just, like, really concrete ways in which a lot of things would be very, as you said, Dahlia, materially different for white folks. Look, I think that racism is one of the most powerful tools that the right has used to undermine literally every social movement that's fighting on every front on every issue we might care about um, forever. I think it'd be hard to find an example of a social movement that was not weakened by racism and white supremacy. Um it's just it's a really and they do that right by making sure that white folks feel more solidarity with white folks at the top right than other people who that they are, we actually have a, sh- a very shared common experience with so i think about my own life right i think about the way in which the women's movement was undermined right by by racism and white supremacy and has been weakened the movement for queer liberation movements for economic justice right every single time white folks get can get picked off um And it undermines um, in really material ways. We wouldn't be able to win way more things for everybody um, if white folks hadn't been used um, basically as a tool by those at the top to undermine those those movements for justice. Um, I mean, I also think there's a lot of like spiritual healing, too. I mean, we talked some about like what what white people have to give up and how that messes with our own sense of self, too. I think that um, we have a lot to gain by undoing white supremacy on that level um, as well.
0: So So circling back to the work of Surge more broadly, what do you hope will be gained through Surge's efforts and movements for social, racial, and economic justice? And what are Surge's unique contributions?
2: Yeah, good question. I think, I mean, similarly, I think that, um, so I think white communities are one of the biggest barriers to winning just about everything that we care about. I mean, I said this earlier, and I think if we really want to radically transform the world, we're going to need to not win over all the white people, but we do need more white folks than we have now (laughs) Um, to be moved into multiracial coalitions. And I, you know, I think our unique contribution is like moving people into those fights at scale in ways that are accountable to those folks on the front lines, right? I think, you know, I talked about earlier really like wanting to bring these two organizing traditions together, right? One that brings like a deep respect for history and deep political education and self-interrogation with the base building work, right? That's actually about transforming systems and structures. And so my my hope at surge is that like we're we're moving, you know, soon. Millions, you know, we're, we're moving hundreds of thousands of white folks now into accountable action. And my dream is that we'll be moving millions and millions of white people in communities that are really important to breaking the power of the right and to winning the really liberatory agenda that's been set by those most at the front, you know, most impacted and really on the front lines of fights against racial capitalism and white supremacy. And, um, you know, I think our unique contribution. I think there's a lot of really amazing groups that do deep political education, and oftentimes that's not matched with action. And I think one of the things I love about Surge is that we're doing both, right? But imperfectly, but I I think it's really important that we're we're trying to do both things at the same time. Um, and I think another another thing that's unique about Surge is I think is our our um, that we're. We're organizing so many different kinds of white people, and that we're also, um, we have a new focus over the last couple of years on organizing um, in rural communities, in poor and working class communities, and in the rural South, um, which I think is different than some of the other um, anti racist formations that have been out there that have been focused on organizing white folks. So, um, cool. And, and so, we're going to build a little bit off of
1: that mention of the South. So, um, you talked. Before about Surge's values, we talked about how Surge came about and so forth. And then this past year, Surge released Guiding Stars, right? And then you know, there was a whole process. I know, you know, I I I was part of some some of that. I have some insider knowledge, but to the world (laughs) that that was not in those rooms, (laughs) you know, how did we land on these Guiding Stars, and why uh, was there such a specific focus? Uh, both within the, the process of developing the Guiding Stars on the southern region? Um, and why has there been such a, a focus um, on on the south?
2: So behind the curtain look here. Um, yes, so we we're the Wizard of Oz. There, there was a lot. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Um, so we landed at Surge earlier this year on two Guiding Stars, and they are Abolition and Economic Justice. And one of the reasons, um, we landed on abolition for many reasons, but I think it was very, very important. So last summer, the summer of 2020, well, let me actually start by saying there's lots of people who've been doing abolitionist work inside the surge network for a really, really long time. So there were deep threads already kind of there. And as we've alluded to, I mean, you have to be living under a rock to not know that there were massive uprisings last summer, the summer of 2020, That moved literally millions of people into the streets for the first time ever and into action for racial justice for the first time ever. And lots of people were coming into surge and lots of people were coming into movement and looking to surge as like, you know, what do I do? I'm a white person and I want to show up in ways that are accountable. And I think um, it felt really important that at that and there and I think our movement did a really good job at making very clear what the problem was. And for the first time in, not the first time, but really abolitionist demands were, were becoming mainstream, which was really powerful. <laughs> Organizations have been doing this work for a really, really long time. And people in power got really scared and waged an intentional campaign to make sure that that did not continue. And it felt really important that as, you know, a, a majority white national organization that we were really clear about where we thought the solutions were. Um, and we think that that's to defund the police and to ma- take mass- make massive divestments out of um, car- the carceral state and instead invest in frontline communities on their own terms. And so in the fight for what, what, what the solution is, it felt really important for us to be really clear in that moment that we were aligned with Black-led frontline organizations that were abolitionist, to both help new people coming into movement, be really clear about that, and also to help our base, right, who are also people who are learning um, along the way, just to be really clear about kind of where, where we stood politically. Um, yeah, so that felt really important in that moment to be really absolutely clear about that. Um there's probably lots more to say about that. Dolly, do you want to say anything else about the abolition star before No, I- no. I mean, we, we had, had to draw a damn justice. line in the
1: sand, you know, you know, yeah. at some point we had There's like- some
2: wild ideas people got out there from people with a lot of power and a lot of money. Right.
1: And like and that was what was getting center stage attention after a while was like, "Oh, when you're, you know, it's like the concessions, right? Like, so we're at, we're demanding abolition. So then we have to concede by these like bullshit reforms. And we saw a lot of that kind of like coming out to water down this eight this can't wait bullshit. can can't wait, which, you know, we'll link to in the audience. We won't get into that. Oh the the yeah. eight can't wait kind of stuff right now. Unless we wanted to. Um, yeah. But where it did become an issue for, you know, when we look at, and and that can speak a lot to this around like, what are reforms that will help us achieve like abolition in the long run? And what are the reforms that will hurt us? And what we were seeing was that there were a lot of these reforms that were being pushed by mainstream politicians that would actually hurt us in the long run and and not actually achieve what our demands were. Yeah, a lot of these reforms
0: are not actually taking us towards abolition because abolition is not necessarily – just about immediate change. It can be incremental change so long as it's not conceding power or money or expanding the scope of what we're trying to dismantle, right? So, you know, a lot of these reforms like we need more funding for training law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, we need more funding for housing and for community-based care. So it's only expanding the amount of resources going towards law enforcement. So, you know, one of the fundamental principles that we hold as Justice LA and Dignity and Power Now is that we don't build anything that we have to dismantle in the future, right? And so it's it's really important to support incremental change that gets us to where we want to be, so long as it's not actually, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And in the case of some of these reforms that were presented, like it hey, can't wait, it was it wasn't a step forward. <laughs> it was a million steps back. Mm-hmm.
1: And if we're a group of white folks who are dr- trying to do the right thing and organizing in the right direction in social justice movements, then, you know, I, I, I you know, thought it, I, I agreed with with the assessment that it was time for us to get really like, clear on what our radical vision was that we were trying to achieve by these solidarity campaigns across the chapter network by trying to mobilize, you know, the the base and then also create um, means for people who weren't attached to a particular chapter or didn't have access to chapters to actually be able to still throw down in social justice movements and then them knowing and having the language as to like what they were trying to like what the 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 final like end game was which was abolition and and not mincing words because you know there was enough of that going on there was enough enough static happening around that yeah totally there's another guiding star that we're going. oh go for it go for the other guiding star all
2: right i'll be i'll be so second one's economic justice and the this is based on our assessment i mean some of the stuff we've been talking about right for the last bit of time here which is that there are huge swaths of white communities who are suffering under racial capitalism, who for whom there is very real pain happening for folks. And largely, the Democratic Party and a lot of progressive infrastructure has not organized them. And instead, the right has, right, has gone in to explain to people what is the cause of their suffering. And they're telling them communities of color, not you know, the economic system and those at the top that are getting really, really wealthy off of our labor. Sorry,
0: I want to stop you right there. Because you mentioned this term racial capitalism. And I'm sure some of our listeners are Mm -hmm. like, what is racial capitalism? Like we recognize racism and capitalism, right? But what does it mean to combine those two things?
2: It's such a good question. Racial capitalism is so jargony. For folks who are looking
1: to really dig in, and this is like your jam, is academia in in some level, um, we'll throw some links to Robin D.G. Kelly, who is really amazing and can really break down racial capitalism. Not to say, Erin, that you can't, but for folks that really want to dive in (laughs) in ways that the next couple minutes may not be able to fully achieve. So all that to say, Erin, take it away. Racial capitalism.
2: Go listen to Robin is my first thing to say, because he's brilliant. Um, racial capitalism is a term. That, so capitalism is the economic system that we live under, right? And um, it, it, it um, the, and we use the term racial capitalism to acknowledge the fact that the current system can't exist without race. <laughs> There's no way for us to think about the economic system that we live under um, without understanding that racism, race and racism and white supremacy is baked into it. So sometimes we think about, um, or we hear like that there are disproportionate outcomes in our economy, right? Like, um, people of color have, you know, people talk a lot about the racial wealth gap, which is a very real thing. Um, and sometimes when we only talk about the outcomes of racial capitalism, on different um, communities, then we, we kind of lose the point that race is baked into the entire economic structure, and it's something that we actually have to contend with in our strategies for organizing. Um, I'm not sure how great that was at a description no, at a 101. No, that's great. But it it can't, we can't just think about the outcomes. We have to think about how race is used to maintain the system. Because when we understand that, then we're able to design organizing interventions that can actually help more white people build solidarity with communities of color, which actually is gonna be the thing that I think is the most transformative move um, for our movement. So
0: no, no, that's super helpful. And you know, just for some context every single capitalist system has depended upon subjugation of a specific group of people in order to extract labor there there is no exception right and so when when you're talking about you know race being a a component that's baked into our capitalist system it's it's really part of the rationale for subjugating and extracting from uh, marginalized communities, in order to build capital, right? Like, those are the fundamental building blocks of an extractive economic system known as capitalism.
1: Yes. Fucking A. Okay. So, um, <laughs> love it. I hope everybody's really enjoying this conversation as much as I am. And we are, we have like, we're just going to round out uh, right before we we end just a little bit more conversation about the South. Like, you know, why, you know, because in the earlier days of my involvement in surge back in 2014, um, there wasn't as, there wasn't the, like, their strategic decision to, st- excuse me, the strategic decision to focus on the South as much like the, it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, something that I recall hearing and it was definitely part of the evolution of organizing and, and, and being in movement and hearing feedback and so forth, and then really making a strategic choice of where resources were going to go. And that was in the South. And so can you talk a little bit more about the, the, the why behind that, the, the, um, outcomes of that so far and any sort of success stories or any, anything that you wanted to share, Um, Especially because a lot of people, I think, um, and myself, like, you know, growing up in Massachusetts, growing up in New England, we have this idea of what we think constitutes the South. And it's just not that, right? Like, it's pretty radical. And there's a huge, you know, tradition of resistance. Um, and so, you know, can you talk a little bit about why search chose uh, to throw down both within the guiding stars and the evolution of that over time? Well, I'll pick up where
2: you left off, which is just that like, there is a really deeply, there is a deep movement in the South and a deep organizing tradition. Like we, I got to interview Angela Davis once and she was like, all the most badass white anti racists come out of the South. Right. And it's because, uh, yeah. And so I'm like, take that with a lot of respect. There's just a deep, deep history of resilience and organizing under, really repressive conditions that a lot of us who have not organized in the region like don't know and don't understand um and it's yeah folks are brilliant so the long lineage there i just want to start start there um look i i I think the the right in this country from the founding of the country has known that their ability to control the country comes from their ability to control the south and more specifically from uh, in their capacity to make sure that poor and working class white people do not build multiracial solidarity with other working class communities of color. So just on a very pragmatic level, the South, like, if we cannot defeat the Republican Party and far right forces in the South, we don't think we're going to be able to beat them at nationally. The Du Bois quote, as goes the South, so goes the nation. Like, we share that assessment, And so while surge organizes nationally, we think it's a really strategic role for really important place to be organizing um, white people. Um, So one, like there's just an incredible amount of power that's controlled there. So I think like I think it's like in order to win the presidency, I think 40 percent of the electoral college votes come from the South. And um, some of the most far-right actors right now in the government, this has been true forever, but it's like even more explicit now, come out of the South, right? And so at the congressional level. So when we think about control of the federal government, we actually have to be breaking up their power in the South long haul in order to be able to to shift things at the national level. It's clearly not the only move needed, right? But we think it's a really, really important one. And when we think about our lane at Surge, you know, our role is organizing white folks, right? Right. And there's the highest concentration of poor white folks are in the South. Um, these are the folks who are most suffering economically under racial capitalism of, of white folks. And so when we think about where are the numbers of people who have the most to gain from joining a movement for justice, there are millions and millions of poor white people in the South that we know um, that are going to come with us. Right. If we go out and organize, if we knock their doors, if we create the political homes um, for people to join. Um, because we know that the right is. The right is door knocking. The right has developed this very sophisticated communications infrastructure and has targeted rural Southern communities. And so as we as we begin to chip away in those communities and create different alternative homes and help people understand a different way to make meaning um, of what's happening to them in different ways, we're actually undercutting um, the power of the right. And this is really, really long haul work, but we think it's really important. Um, if we're going to be able to really defeat the far right in this country, um, and, and create space, more space, you know, for a liberatory vision to, to flourish and to be won, um, by our comrades and partners. So if we have time, I could tell a quick story. Yes. Yes. yes, We'd love love to hear some some stories, success um, stories,
1: examples. Yeah. Give
2: it. yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of our dear comrades in, um, in rural Tennessee, um started organizing so the Klan um in in 2017 after Charlottesville um happened um there was a white power rally that was planned in um a town in rural Tennessee um and some folks who had been connected to the surge network loosely um decided to to you know plan a counter rally so there was a visible presence that was you know (laughs) um that was anti-clan and then they began knocking on people's doors right Talking to people um, because the Klan had been doing that. They've been doing lit drops and trying to, you know, recruit people to join them. And so we were like, we're going to do that, too. So we started knocking doors and talking to people both about what they thought about that the presence of the Klan in their community, but also about the issues that were impacting their lives. And we asked people what where were their pain points? What was the, the issues that were impacting their lives? And we found after talking to like 500 folks in a, in a very small town, so this is a good chunk of folks in the town, that 94% of people there didn't have safer, affordable housing, that people had all kinds of issues with the landlords, and there was a very small number of landlords that were controlling the town. And, you know, we began to bring people together to make sense of this and to understand, to help a better understand that. Um, the source of their problems were not their immigrant neighbors right or communities of color there, but it was the landlords and it was the city council and it was the state government that wouldn 't let them pass um uh you know affordable housing ordinances because they were they were being blocked at the state level and we helped we start connecting people with um communities of color in cities that were also fighting for affordable housing. And we've won some really powerful shit. Like, throughout COVID, we've been able to keep lots of people in their houses um, and preventing them from getting evicted. We've been fighting, you know, alongside comrades at the national level for more um, renter protections um, throughout COVID. And um, one of our members got elected to city council on an anti-Klan pro-renter agenda in a town that Trump won by 70%. So it is deeply possible in very conservative parts of the country to move people if we speak to their suffering and if we do this work with people um, that is not hiding from race, not not like not talking about it and hoping that people like <laughs> won't talk about it, but talking about it explicitly to help people understand um, that they have much more, to, much more to gain by by multiracial solidarity than they do, you know, building around the solidarity of whiteness. So. Um yeah. That's one story, but there's many more of really powerful work that's happening across the rural south. Super powerful, really really inspirational. I'm glad
0: that we're lifting the veil from this notion that the south is is not a nexus of organizing and is is not at the forefront cuz that's just not historically true and it's not true on the ground um and i think that narrative that false narrative is is really something that um that impacts the way that we build national power right and that we're able to actually build with our comrades in the south um it's it's a really harmful narrative like i'm i'm so glad that you named what we need to do to win um and that that we need the South, and we need to be in solidarity, um, and really learning from the the wins and the the really sharp organizing that's happening down there. Um, there's so many great organizations uh, that that are based in the South, like queer organizations, like really radical queer organizations that are doing amazing work. So I'm glad we lifted that up.
2: Yeah, they're so incredibly. I mean, not to not to name the obvious, but I'm like, look at what happened in Georgia. People counted them out for years, and it was largely black women like doing the nuts, you know, the day in, day out, not very glamorous organizing work that's, you know, registering people to vote and then getting people out and folks counting them out. And look what happened, you know, flip the entire federal government, um, you know, which is not a small thing, insufficient, but a really, really important um, piece of the puzzle. So
0: this is the the part of our podcast where we do a call to action. So if there's anything for our audience to read, listen, watch, or donate to, uh, can you please share?
2: Yeah. The first thing I want you to do is, uh, for those of you who are white, I want you all to join Surge. So if you go to surge.org, you can sign up to become a member, and we will put you to work uh, and help you do some of that learning and unlearning. Um, when I'm reading, I got two recs these days. Um, one is... The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. It's a really good. It's a really good read on mutual interest. Um, this term that we talked about, helping you know understand how we all have something to gain. Um, and then we talked about Anne Braden, so I got to give the Anne Braden biography, Subversive Southerner. If you haven't done that shout out on the podcast yet, um, it's really really powerful um, book about some of the lineage in history we can be proud of and wanna grow into.
1: Hell oh, yeah. Anything
2: to – any uh, organization you would suggest donating to? Oh, um, why don't – let's lift up our comrades at the New Georgia Project. We were just talking about the South and the really, you know, st- strategic importance of the South. The New Georgia Project did a lot of the work that got us over the over the line in Georgia. Um, folks can always donate to the Highlander Center, who I've mentioned several times throughout this call. Um, they've been, you know, a movement home for so much of that radical work in the South. So, yeah
1: awesome and of course folks can donate to surge as well so we you know we'll shout out a donation to surge in addition to comrades
0: well thank you so much for being with us today it's
1: been super fun Erin. thanks for having me y'all i'm so excited we just got to have that conversation with Erin. uh that was a that was a gem thanks for listening y'all find the links to what we
0: talked about today in the show notes which can be found at patreon.com slash the show is hosted and produced by me yvette allay And me, Dahlia Ferlita. Produced by Hannah Jers-Allen of White People for Black Lives and produced and edited by Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson of Small Beans Comedy. Theme song by Rachel Cantu. That's a wrap, y'all.